Hello and welcome to Minted Dialogue, episode number 215. Today is Sunday the 9th of October 2016, and this interview is with Mikhail Namov, 27 years old, and already a serial entrepreneur pioneering in the use of artificial intelligence for customer service. Mikhail is a contributor at Forbes and was recognized this year as one of Forbes' 30 under 30 in enterprise tech. In this podcast, we explore the state of advancement in artificial intelligence with a focus on how it applies to business in the most practical of instances, with Digital Genius, a startup that Mikhail co-founded with Dmitry Aksenov. Digital Genius is a truly fascinating way to enhance the customer service relationship, using AI deep learning, all the while enabling an optimized human plus machine experience. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So today I have had the great pleasure to get to know, over the last couple of years, Mikhail Naumov. So Mikhail, Tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Minter. Uh, as, as you say, yep, my name is Mikhail. Uh, I am the co-founder and chief strategy officer of a company called Digital Genius. It's a machine learning, deep learning company focusing on making customer service a lot better. My mindset, mm, I would say it's, pro- it's pragmatically optimistic and generally enthused about the world around me, curious about what's to come, and, and excited to be a part of it all. Well, what is the what excites you the most these days? Uh, well, I spend a lot of time inside my business and inside other companies, uh, figuring out how do we take this great, amazing, noisy thing called artificial intelligence, and how do we make it practical for companies and people inside those companies to a understand, b implement, and c benefit from. So that's probably what I'm most excited about is because we are living in a time in a place where technology is just taking off at an unprecedented rate, and for the first time, the, this idea of artificial intelligence can actually be practically implemented uh, in, a, in a very useful way. Well, I want to get back to that in a moment, but let's, let's start and figure out how Mikhail got to where he's got to. So give us a little bit about your spin before and how you got to be an, become an entrepreneur. Where are you from? So, yeah, I was born in, in the Soviet Union uh, and in the very last two years of the Soviet Union's the existence. Soviet Union, yeah. yeah, right. So pretty much I'm from Russia, and uh, I grew up in a very small town in the Ural Mountains. Um, and as a kid, I just remember kind of this 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 uh, transformation of the entire country's uh, ecosystem, uh, political structure, and the country's mindset, most of all. And I watched folks, you know, begin by selling blue jeans and, you know, suddenly 10 years later running and building factories. And that was just a very exciting, entrepreneurially spirited time and place to be as a child. Mm -hmm. And then when I had the chance to actually travel and and move over to the United States, I was only still like 9 or 10 years old. And I said, presumably you went with your parents? I went, yeah, first my mom went. She went to, she's a scientist. She went to pursue her further scientific studies. She took part in, I think it was the George Soros grant, which was sponsoring folks to go over and continue their scientific education. And um, I came over, you know, as a kid, did, did, did the thing that kids do, lived in suburban New Jersey, went to school, and in my first year at college, uh, really got around this idea of wanting to learn by experience. And, you know, school was great, the lectures were not particularly fun, but um, I wanted to learn more about the world of emerging technologies. And one of the things that was captivating me was clean tech and renewable energy. This was 2007. So instead of, uh, you know, I ran around, tried to find some people that knew about it. And what I learned very quickly is when it comes to emerging tech, at the time it was clean energy, now it's AI. It, by the time a textbook is written, you're so out, out of date. 
So the well, not much less how a teacher is learning about it, because unfortunately, I mean, most academia are, are even a step behind everything. That's right, and that's getting better, of course, with that's online true. learning and sort of adaptive learning models that are actually AI plays a part in, um, and I have high hopes for that for the world of education. But in terms of uh, being, you know, going to school trying to learn about engineering, clean tech, um, I learned that it's probably best not to reference a textbook. And I, we got together with some friends, and a friend of mine had the idea: why don't we actually book a flight and go to a country and go to a place where we can see the stuff in real life? So we booked these flights over to uh, Central America to a small little country of Costa Rica where over 80% of their renewable energy, or excuse me, of all their energy um, consumption is powered by renewable sources like wind, solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, um, and biomass. And we met uh, some local folks in the community, and particularly one fascinating architect and engineer who had the connections, was able to get us inside these places so we can uh, talk to the engineers. We can see how a wind turbine works. We can climb on top. We can ask the questions we could never ask a textbook, and we could never ask a professor and see how it all works. So we came back very enthusiastic about what we saw. We thought we'd bring that opportunity to more students at more universities and very quickly launched this little startup out of my dorm room, which uh, was called the Green Program, and it's, it's focused on taking students and faculty members out of their classrooms, away from their textbooks, and bringing them to exotic, exciting destinations around the world where they can study topics like renewable energy and emerging technology. And the business still runs today. I did my part, you know, building it up to what, to a, to what it became a sustainable business. Now my co-founder runs it full-time. Well, that's brilliant. I mean, what I love, Mikhail, about this is this notion of experiential learning because at the end of the day, it's true that you, you learn by doing and experiencing it. And it, a lot of schools, of course, especially in the more evolved ones, are, are, have moved towards this concept of learning by doing. And I should also take back another point I was just thinking about as I was listening to you. A lot of universities are now so much more integrated with the entrepreneurships that a lot of the professors are more entrepreneurial and are actually getting more into prototyping and, and making things happening. Right, well, so, that, so where, where, which university was that, by the way? So I went to school, undergrad at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and actually even before we did this first startup, um, you know, I got there in 2007 and we had a look around and I said, you know, I come, you know, I came from Russia, this entrepreneurial mindset was with me through my childhood. I said, there's really nothing here for a guy like me, you know, I, I can take the business courses, I can try to, you know, dabble in engineering, but there's, where are all the people, where are all the resources that can help me become an entrepreneur and it goes exactly to what you said is to become an entrepreneur you don't go to class what you do is you actually go out there and do it so before I ever did anything of my own business I found some folks around who had a similar mindset and we created the the first ever entrepreneurial organization on my campus hmm. that catered to um, essentially bringing people kids students and in the university together to find ways to start businesses to create you know prototypes to get out there and raise funding and we created sort of this this ecosystem in the first year that never existed before where alumni of the university who are successful entrepreneurs and business folks would come back and they would provide feedback and tell about their experience and mentor some of these students as they were building and starting and building their own businesses out of the dorm room. And again, with that organization, we, we helped launch, I think it was over 20 or 30 companies in the first two years. We're dorm room businesses all the way to like big companies that are actually doing pretty well right now. The Green Program was sort of the one of the byproducts of this mindset. And then eventually I got out of that business um, and uh, got into what I'm doing today with AI. All right, so so let's call it an emerging technology. But in, in fairness, of course, AI has been around for a long time. 
So why why would one say that it actually is or feeling like it is emerging finally today? Yeah. So most most folks around most folks listening are probably thinking like this AI thing has gotten so noisy and like you know I heard about it. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I'm hearing about it today even more. So what's different? Like, what's changed? And um, it is true. The, this is like stuff has been talked about for a very long time. And we even experienced about a decade ago as like an AI nuclear winter when everybody thought it was going to do all these great things and suddenly it did nothing. And uh, people kind of st- stopped focusing on it for a little while. But the folks that didn't stop, the research community, actually reinforced themselves and it kind of left only the people in, in that field who are truly passionate about it. And these are the folks that are thinking about, okay, how do we make a, a machine understand? How do we make a machine, you know, sentient one day? How do we do this thing? And um, as a result of some research of some very smart folks at different universities and different organizations, uh, this field started becoming a little bit more interesting. There were some papers published, some new findings, but most importantly, new capabilities that are there today that were not there ever before. Number one, significant advancements in hardware. So having the ability to have reliable and affordable access to GPUs, to compute power that any startup or any large organization can immediately tap into and do the type of data processing that they could never do in such a way. Number one. Number two, it's access to software and essentially people that are writing code, figuring out a way to make these research papers about AI practical in a software sense. That's number two. And number three, important component that didn't exist before, is the overwhelming abundance of new data that's being created and has been created. And right now, believe it or not, is sitting inside databases, inside companies' servers, and is not being used for anything or for for the things that it could be used for. Well, I mean, let's say that that data, because I used to work at uh, L'Oreal, there was a lot of data, but it used to sit in the form of uh, customer addresses on postcards that would sit underneath the marketing manager's desk and, and not get used. So data has been around for a long time. What about the role of internet in AI? Has that not also been one of the things that's contributed to the hockey stick effect about the arrival of, in, of AI? I think the internet as such has played a significant acceleration role in pretty much all of our lives and all aspects of our lives. So to say that it's had an overwhelming impact in just AI is definitely is not, not the right case. I think it has had AI, as well as technology in general, as well as conversation and people talking about these things and doing these things has really been accelerated by the Internet. And now people connecting all over the world very quickly can get up to speed with what a certain researcher is doing in this part of the world and how you can apply it to a business problem inside of a geography of a completely different country. And all of this is now being shared quickly. I think the other thing the Internet did is it actually accelerated the amount of data we get every day. I don't remember the exact recent stats on this, but I think we're generating XXXXX number more, more data per month today than we did in the last yeah deck you know century and uh, that's a huge uh, that's, a, that, that's, that's a huge achievement of actually the internet and yeah. people sharing and talking and doing these things right, right. I, I'm sure of that when we um, when we look at artificial intelligence there's this word of intelligence and an artifice uh, of it what are there different ways that the people in the AI community break down intelligence. I mean, let's say that, you know, previous to this type of discussion, when we talk about intelligence, we can talk about social intelligence, mathematical intelligence, emotional intelligence, so on. 
What about an AI? Are there different ways that you can break down the way AI is being applied in terms of intelligences? Yeah, I think that's a very important question to ask because AI has become a buzzword once again. And it's important for everyone to understand, you know, what is what it is essentially and how, how does it differ from other things that are being portrayed as AI. And I think you have to look at it as a spectrum. And the spectrum really starts with a place of no AI, a, a place of just basic logic, program mis- pr- just programming, scripting, uh, doing things in the more traditional natural language processing, NLP sense of the word. Um, what I'm referring to is like this huge misunderstanding that's happening in the market of chatbots are AI and AI can be a chatbot. It's not necessarily always the case. So on the very left side of the AI spectrum, you have very little or almost no artificial intelligence, but is a chatbot that is automating conversation based on keyword recognition, phrase recognition, and and predetermined scripting. Essentially, lots of if-then statements embedded into each other, passed off as an intelligent uh, software or intelligent machine. And this has become really hot lately. And it has its applications, but in a place like customer service where our business operates, it really is not a solution at all to a customer's problems. So that's on the left side of the spectrum. On the very right side of the spectrum of artificial intelligence is this notion of artificial general intelligence, the idea that you can actually train a computer or a machine to become as smart or smarter or more capable intellectually than a human being. And this is something that you see in Hollywood movies and is being portrayed sure. ex- extremely frequently today. Um, and, and that is still you know, decades away. That's still not practical. It's still not applicable. But it's an area of huge research and huge interest to a lot of big companies, which is why you see companies like Google making an acquisition a few years back of the DeepMind and Facebook creating their own AI research labs and Amazon investing heavily in academic research and, and research capacity inside their organization. These are all folks that are spending, you know, investing their life into their passion of achieving or helping the world achieve artificial general intelligence. So that's the opposite side of the spectrum. But I think where it all comes together for for folks who are in business today or for entrepreneurs starting to start trying to start companies in this space is really this emerging emerging space backing off of the narrow AI, which is not general AI, but it's it, it certainly is intelligent it's just intelligent in a narrow use case and it's the application of those use cases in conjunction with humans processes Mm -hmm. to create value in an organization this is the notion of of why deep blue one is better when it's accompanied by a chess specialist as opposed to let on its own it's just the notion of having the human with the machine is better than the machine by itself I think today that's still very much the case. So uh, we believe at our combat digital genius in an approach called human plus AI customer service. We don't believe that AI will be replacing customer service advisors or customer service agents in the in the foreseeable future. Instead, we see an evolution of the role of the agent such that the machine will always do what the machine is more efficient at doing statistical computation, making predictions, uh, bringing the right data and propagating it in front of a human advisor in the right time in an accurate way and guiding them. But the human will still be that layer of the brand's tone of voice, of the accuracy and in the, in the genuine nature of the conversation that a brand would want to have with a customer. So I think it's very much about the, the seamless combination of the human and machine intelligence working together in a, in a seamless environment. Back to your deep blue comment, I think there's there are some comments to be said. You know, they have 
chess uh, leagues that you have to play with a computer next to you, or actually the computers play with a human next to them. But they also had recently, you know, the, the Alpha Go project, the, the Go game, and that was fascinating because when they trained it, you know, they obviously had human folks, but actually at one point they flipped the humans off, if you believe in that, and they actually had the game play itself. You know, the machine played itself in the game and generated, you know, that massive amounts of historical data about how the games turned out and then retrained itself um, through, diff- through various processes um, to become more efficient at winning the game. And even then, what you saw as an outcome, I think uh, the machine won a few games and the human won a few games. Well, it, let's, if we just dive one second into this notion, the way I see it is that artificial intelligence will never achieve total the, the, the ability to learn by itself because it's sort of like inseminating it with life. It, it, is, it is at its root still a program that has been written and a code. And insofar as the code, of course, wants to teach it to, to improve itself, it's still a code. And we, haven't, we can't insert it to create itself. It can, re, it can improve, it can recreate, but it can't start it. Wow. So I guess the, the, the concept of a genesis of something, the beginning of something, is probably still very, very far off uh, in the world of AI, and if ever. I do think that you know, it, it can certainly train itself to become better, more intelligent, more efficient um, over time on its own without supervision of a human, um, de- depending on the use case, of course. But if you ask, you know, can it start itself from scratch? Well, another way to say it, can it have an original thought? Can, can an AI have an original thought? I think yes. Um, and uh, it depends on how you consider what a thought is. Um, if a thought is a visual representation of something in front of you that is then communicated to the world around you through the translation of a visual image to language, of expression, then perhaps the AI may not necessarily very quickly achieve that because there's just lots of things involved. There's visual, computer vision, there's the translation of that into language. And then, but, but, but then again, it's being done today. You know, you could go on YouTube and you can watch a video of somebody walking around with an iPhone pointing it at garbage dumpsters in the street, cars, people eating a hamburger, and their algorithm is essentially putting the words of what's happening in, the, in this, um, in this in the world around you. So the computer vision is there, but that's no way original. What I'm referring to as original, and it's in a terrible state today, but I've seen uh, 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 what they called an original screenplay written by AI. And that was, I think it was, you know, it was an interesting project. It was very creative and it was very curious, but I watched, you know, five, ten minutes of that segment and I thought to myself, you know, this is not something I want to... It wasn't good. You knew it wasn't good. We haven't got that far. All right, let's let's, let's now plunge into your, your startup here. So you got you are based in, in San Francisco, in Silicon Valley. The large majority of your programmers are based in London. Digital Genius, tell us what it is and, uh, and give us some insights as to what you're on about. Yeah, so we, we started out about three years ago in London trying to figure out how do we make uh, communication between brands and their customers more efficient and in a way more automated. And we started more on the left side of the AI spectrum um, experimenting with traditional natural language processing techniques and creating these like really, really well-designed chat tools and chat bots, if you will, and to, to help companies. And we, you know, in the early days, helped 
companies like BMW launched their electric vehicles through this SMS system that people could ask questions to and they would get answers and it would start off easy like what color does the car come in and how much it costs but it eventually lets them for example book book a test drive at a, at a dealership nearby so there was certainly business value but it wasn't you know true sophisticated AI and over time we realized that the limitations of traditional NLP in the world of customer service are so significant that if we wanted to really make an impact and build a company in this space, we had to start looking at the problem in a different way. And this was about two years ago when we first had this thought and we said, look, programming anything in, the, in this sense is just too limiting and it doesn't scale. So to build a company that can make AI practical and useful and valuable in the world of customer service, we really had to start looking at the world of machine learning and deep learning in particular. So this is, this is where we moved and evolved on the spectrum of artificial intelligence research and, and the implementation and started experimenting and then building upon technology that can go into a contact center of any large organization. We can take the historical data, the historical chat logs, the historical email logs, social media records of all of the conversations that ever took place between human customers and human agents via text-based channels we can train on those logs, and by train, I mean ingest them, convert them into mathematical representation of language called word vectors, and then use those word vectors to build a mathematical deep learning model, which can then integrate back into the contact center. And the idea of this whole thing is questions are being asked repetitively all day long thousands of them and these advisors these human agents are sitting there and if you ever had you know spent time in a call center you see that there is massive inefficiency there are things that these folks are doing that in today's state of technology they should not be doing you've got people copy pasting answers out of word documents you have people searching knowledge bases manually selecting and highlighting you've got people tagging and classifying incoming emails to make sure that the company can analyze them later all of this can be improved significantly with the application of deep learning. And this is the insight we had, and we immediately went to market. We started deploying this. We started you know, figuring out and asking for feedback from our customers and ended up building this product that can actually go in there and fairly quickly train on the logs, create the model, integrate the model into their customer service console software, for example, Salesforce Service Cloud or any one of these other pieces of technology that's already there that the agents are used to and start creating predictions. And so those predictions look like this. If, let's say, Minter was uh, you know, running late, coming off an airplane, and, for example, the airline lost their bag for some reason, you know, he doesn't want to pick up the phone and call and wait. He doesn't want to email and wait for another 24 hours to get an email response. He just wants his bag back before he exits the airport. So he's going to take out his, his phone. He's going to open up Facebook Messenger because that's what many of us do nowadays when they want to get something done. And he'll, he'll find the airline inside Messenger, and he'll say, look, I lost my bag again. Like, can you, can you get it back for me? Right. And the idea that that message is then going to be routed into this contact center and is going to sit inside of a queue waiting for a human advisor to get to it when they do. Well, that assumes that there is a filter that allows me to get to the contact center. Because let's say that there are still plenty of social media avenues that are managed by the marketing team. That's absolutely true. And I, I do believe that social, social channels in particular are extremely valuable and useful in the world of marketing. However, there is this increasing capability for customers 
to reach out to the brands that they love and use every day, not just to find out information about the new launch or the new product, but to actually resolve a question, get an upgrade, figure something out that they couldn't do on the website. And using messaging channels, particularly social messaging channels like Facebook and, and even Twitter and some of the new ones that are coming up, is becoming a massive opportunity, not just for these brands to market more sure. or to just solve problems, but actually to take people that are using the brand's products, that have a concern about the product, that can then be addressed quickly, but then turned into a loyal customer once again. So reinforcing the brand through making themselves accessible online. All right. Well, you know, you, we've been talking about Facebook Messenger and all the social channels. I was reading an article a couple of days ago that said that 9 out of 10 customers would like to be able to text message, SMS, the brands. And, and I don't know how many brands that allow that to happen. At best, they provide a 1-800 number, which is not exactly a textable number. So what number are we supposed to be able to even text so the default then becomes Twitter or Facebook. Or I want to get a one in, into one point, which is you're coming into a company and they have a lot of data. I, I, in my experience, there's a nasty word for this, but it's, it starts with cluster and it rhymes with duck. It's, it's usually difficult to capture all that data because it resides over there, over here. It's in one format here. It's in a floppy disk over there. It's on a USB key over here, quote-unquote. How, how, how is it? I mean, that must be quite a monumental uh, undertaking. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, companies, especially companies that have been around long enough to actually go through several iterations and generations of technology and have been upgrading and evolving their tech stack are finding themselves in a place where this data can be, unfortunately, disaggregated and that's not to say that it's no longer valuable. In fact, if your company's sitting on top of four years, three years, even six months of customer service historical records, you're sitting on top of a of an oil well, and and you're just not using it, or on top of a you know a gold a gold mine if you don't like oil, um, right? So the idea is that how do you extract that data and make it meaningful? But before you can extract, or as you extract, you also have to. Be mindful that it can be coming from different different, different places. Exactly. So what what happens there is actually there, you know, there are a lot of tools that help you aggregate data already on the market. Um, we really don't don't spend the time focusing on like how do we bring something out of a legacy system into another system. We focus on just piping into any database that has information that could be valuable in training the algorithm and, and extract that information through an API. So it really doesn't become the, the the necessity of somebody at the company to go and like extract and export data files from USBs. Well, if it's a USB, they're going to have to do that. But if it's in the cloud and let's hope or on a server, we can pipe with an API into it and we can extract the historical logs we need to train the deep learning model. Um, I think what's also helpful is we don't aim to replace any customer service a console. Uh, there are plenty of those in the market today, and they've done a great job, I think, making it easier and uh, for, 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 sure. for agents. But what we do is we actually integrate as a layer of machine intelligence that can be trained on the data that is already there and then can make certain predictions and um, in, intelligently automate certain parts of the conversation. Mm-hmm. All right, so 
In, in the case of you got all the data, and I'm thinking of the context you were just mentioning that before, if, if uh, you got ma- material from Twitter, which has this limitation on number of characters, you might have a Facebook messenger set, and you might have messages from other sources. Because of the constraints and the context within which or how they, these things are coming, does your AI also sort of compensate for that? I mean, in other words, the number of emoticons and, and as or short text, you know, using CD for could uh, to try and find ways to shortcut and, and y- your system allows for that? Absolutely. This is, I mean, one of the huge advantages of uh, using a, a deep neural network uh, set up for your algorithm because what you're doing essentially, instead of looking at just tweets in one language, let's say in English, and only in let's say, Shakespearean sense of the word English, you know, you're going to be stuck uh, because most people don't talk like that. Most people don't tweet like that, certainly. And what we have is actually, instead of really looking at even the words or the language that they're using, we're taking the logs that are in language and we're converting them into these mathematical word vectors. And math is actually cool because it's a universal language and it doesn't matter if those logs are in English or in French or in Hindi it it just matters that we can ingest them and train the mathematical model so that it can understand and predict in a way I I, I wouldn't say understand as such I would say recognize Mm -hmm. and then predict how to best answer those questions so if people are using emoticons if people are using certain sentiment-driven language, that's absolutely stuff that we would train on, and it would, tra- you know, the model would train itself. So if you've got a customer who's upset and is, you know, using the frown face icon a lot, you know, that is something that is definitely influencing the way in which the human advisor responses. Sure. And because we train on both sides of the conversation, we can learn that, you know, this particular conversation came out, you know, to a certain type of answer, and we can correlate those. All right, so how, how long does it take for a, let's say, a, you know, reasonably large company for you to get embedded and, and, and uh, up and running? Yeah, so I think there, there's been several iterations and generations of our own product, and over time, two things have happened. The algorithm has become better, and the time to deployment, time to value that we could bring and show to companies has become a lot shorter. And so that's something we're really you know, focused on is not how do you, like, you know, write, you know, put out necessarily the best research papers, although we do have a lot of fantastic researchers who are part of that community, and like without them, we would not be anywhere today. But there's also this essence of, you know, just with conducting the best AI research, you're not necessarily going to make it practical in a business world. And so around our research team, who's really the core foundation of our technology, we have an entire product team. And these folks, they love building product. And the type of product, type of use case they care about is really customer service right now. That's what we're focused on. So we're thinking, you know, how do we make this practical? And is there an element of learning client from client? In other words, if you've done one client, are there things that you can then scale, per se, from someone else? Absolutely. One, well, one of the advantages of uh, using a technology that's based in the cloud is that you, know, you can have some kind of aggregated learning that happens and benefits everyone. However, in the world of enterprise customer service, there is an entire must And that must is that your customer data must be safe, secure, and private. And that's something that we had to learn and we had to understand and we had to build into the product from the beginning. Because to hope to work with companies like the the BMWs of the world, you know, 
consumer privacy and even customer data privacy is pretty much the first question we get asked. So we've built for that and we've prepared for that. Yes. Now, there is an element of general understanding of language that, that, that can be benefiting all customers across the board. So just because you don't have a very large call center or contact center and just because you don't have millions of logs but you say have only a, a, few, a few thousand or a few you know, tenth, tens of thousands, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't use the software. It just means that you, know, you, you have to start somewhere so we would be layering your your data on top of a more uh, general just language algorithm that understands how to understand the question. Hello, how are you? All right, so uh, let's say I'm a company, Mikhail, that wants Digital Genius f- to help uh, augment my customer call center. What do I need? What are the criteria that you would insist on in order to be successful in the implementation? Yeah, so I, I guess to tell this one, I'd probably best illustrated with a like a real case study of a real customer and so we had um we had one amazing amazing global airline uh, klm royal dutch airlines uh that has um yesterday announced that our partnership and their deployment of digital genius inside their customer service center they seem like they're very ahead they i mean with the social media in the very beginning so they're, they 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 have kudos in my mind well there's no doubt about that when uh when when the world thinks about where everything is going in the world of serving your customer online in genuine and efficient ways. KLM has always been at the forefront, number one. They were the first to adopt social. They were the first to adopt Facebook Messenger recently. They're the first to adopt um, digital genius, artificial intelligence inside their contact center. And, you know, they get to reap the rewards of all that, but because they're such a, they're so keen on partnering and, and really being part of creating solutions, it's, it's really amazing to work with them. And a lot, you see a lot of other companies in the industry really see what they're doing, see if it works, see how it works, and then moving to adopt that because in many ways KLM Airlines sets the bar when it comes to like the gold standard of uh, social customer service. So how, how they went about it, you know, they, they, they had understood that they have a problem. And their problem was they launched Messenger, Facebook Messenger, mm-hmm. and they suddenly got this huge spike of incoming volume. And for anybody on the marketing side of the organization who's seeing a massive spike in tweets and Facebook messages and posts, that is an amazing number. That is a number of customers that are loving your brand, that want to talk to you. But for anybody on the customer service side of the, of the organization, that is the most expensive graph they've seen. And that is something that needs to be addressed while still keeping in mind that you have to serve your customer in a personalized way. So what KLM had done is they said, look... This is only going to keep growing. This number, this volume, these new channels on social are just going to get bigger as more people come online and use them. So we need to invest and innovate ahead of the curve. So instead of bringing in more people to try to deal with these spikes and whatnot, they saw it as, a, as an extended opportunity to once again get ahead of the game. So we came in, and actually before we came in, they said, what are we going to do? We know that AI is hot. We need to do something about this. How are we going to do it? And they created essentially a matrix. Okay, they went and they surveyed the big companies out there that are, uh, you know, offering artificial intelligence type solutions. And I think what they learned is that when you talk to a company that's from that segment, you know, it's you're looking at a six month deep dive with a proposal and uh, meetings, uh, maybe even you know. That's what I was imagining. Perhaps there's even a you know. uh, a round of golf involved, or who knows, right? But, but if you want to get this thing going now, that's really not the case. Then they looked at a bunch of AI startups. And, and when they did that, they realized, wow, 
these are some of the smartest people we've ever met. And I'm, I'm not talking about our company right now. I'm saying they looked at other startups who were doing AI research, and they said, this is fascinating research. This is going to move the world forward like we've never seen before. But this team, this startup, they've never even thought about the use case of customer service. They don't know what it's like to be a contact center agent. They don't know the problems we have in the airline business. And, and so they said, well... You know, maybe that's not going to work for us. They have a great algorithm, but it's really not useful. So then they came upon us, which is this really this combination of advancing the, the science of AI while making it practical for businesses in the world of customer service. And they said, huh, this is a startup that knows what it's doing, and we should, we should do this together. And so we went into this partnership. We, we devised this pilot and eventually, you know, this, this deployment that, that trained on all the historical logs from social, okay? It created this mathematical model, and then we in- integrated that model directly into their uh, service console, which is Salesforce Service Cloud. And throughout the process, we learned so much about how real agents are going to use this technology and how it's going to help them. So, you know, the, the, the first meeting talking to agents was, you know, it was very nerve- nerve-wracking because when you talk to agents about AI, you know, most people perceive it as something that they're going to lose their job. Is it going to automate them? Yeah. What are the ethical implementations and you know, impact of this? We could talk about yeah. that. But the idea was like, wow, what is this thing? And then we, they recognize that it's really not there to replace the agents. Well, I think that's, that's a key thing. I mean, in the end of the day, one typically looks at the, when I, when I speak to companies, the, the things that people are looking for in automation are get rid of the human being because they're a pain in the ass. They're personnel. I have to deal with them. They're headcount. They're fixed costs. Mm-hmm. How can you help me reduce my costs? And so it's natural, this whole, the fear of automation and the reduction of jobs. Going back to the notion of successful implementation, You've, you've, you've talked about the speed with which they've checked it out, the entrepreneurial approach, I suppose, the big ones. What is, it, what is the fabric that they need to have in order for your solution to be optimally implemented? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, in order to use any kind, not just our solution, but any type of AI tool inside your contact center, you need uh, someone on the team uh, that is willing to I- I investigate and uh, essentially champion this idea and push it through internally. Mm-hmm. Because we know that internally there's lots of things about you know, navigating that you need to do in order to get anything moving, and that's fine. That's normal. So somebody needs to say, look, we have a problem, and there are some ways to solve it, and here's what we need to do. That's number one. Number two, what makes it really easy for that person to become that champion is if they already know that their customer service operation has data that has been stored, so chat logs and email transcripts. I think most of them are always stored. Uh, no one really throws that stuff away. They just kind of store it and file it away. The second thing they need to know is uh, that they have human agents that are receiving volumes that are increasing over time. Mm-hmm. And perhaps these companies want to open up new channels of conversation like Facebook Messenger, or maybe they just want to deal with all the email that's coming in. It doesn't matter. The AI can automate or it can improve the process on any text-based conversation channel. And then, so if they have the data and they have the agents there and they have an internal champion, I think this is the recipe for success. What about the integration of other departments within the company, like marketing, uh, or IT, are, are there opportunities for your service to benefit other areas within the company? 
No doubt about that. I mean, you, your, your customer is your customer. And whether he has a problem or wants to praise you on an awesome marketing campaign, they're still your customer, and you should be able to know like, what's going on no matter what. Uh, with, with them. So the idea of using intelligence as a whole as a way to learn more about your customer and as a way to talk to them in a more intelligent way is really powerful. So start thinking about a future where you have customer service interactions that are being, you know, being, uh, that are happening and retraining this AI model and the learnings about those customers and the learnings about those those types of customers are being stored and saved and trained on. And then that intelligence engine can then pour it over to the marketing side, so to speak, and, and help those folks use it in their proactive campaigns. So predicting what type of message will resonate best with what type of customer, keeping in mind that they recently complained about something on a social channel. That's cool. Well, I've always been a big proponent of, uh, and a few of my friends in customer centers will know this, about mixing back into marketing the, the, the learnings in customer center. So, Mikhail, we're going to close on one area, which is... Um, the, let's say, philosophical element of AI, as we've touched on it a little bit before. But would you say, and I'm going to guess you are, because your mindset is you're pragmatically optimistic, uh, your, your viewpoint on whether AI is positive and ethically viable, and is someone like Stephen Hawking's wrong to say that it's, we should be scared about the future prospects? I think it's normal and natural human nature for, for anyone to be concerned about any sort of innovation that has such disruptive capability in, in the world as we know it. I do think, however, uh, it's, it, 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 needs, it needs to have its round of iterations. It needs to, it needs to have the ability to evolve and, in, and, and grow over time. I think ethically, if we're looking at specific questions, you're looking at things like robots replacing people in jobs. You're looking at machines making decisions about where the car is going to drive and how it's going to get there and keeping in mind that there's pedestrians on the road. Uh, and then one day, you know, getting into a world where if you can statistically predict that some individual, based on their recent habits and doings, is likely to commit a crime to then preemptively prevent, try to prevent that crime from happening... Uh, based on an algorithm's decision, you're talking Hollywood Minority Report. You're talking what you know, what Uber, for example, is going through now with the drive, with the autonomous cars, you know, and pedestrians on the road and on the replacing jobs. You're really talking about any, anything and everything, right? right? But there is a good story to remember about the industrial revolutions and the and the bringing of robots to replace repetitive manual labor to replace humans in the repetitive manual labor sense. I think now we see more of AI machines, AI algorithm, not replacing but improving in, in ways with which intelligent work is done. And that, I think, is good for people. I think when AI reaches a point where it's ubiquitous and it's inside every, every human worker's computer terminal, iPhone, and whatnot, they're going to love it because it's going to make their life easier. It's going gonna, it's gonna to unlock their time to stop doing the repetitive, annoying things they do every day. And I think, ultimately, it's going to allow them to use their intellectual power and their intellectual capabilities to do human intelligence level work rather than repetitive intelligence level work. Well, certainly I've appreciated um, on small levels things like Siri and SwiftKey and 
And I think that maybe the, the left-hand scale of the scale, but certainly stuff I'm excited about. And the, th- the other thing I was thinking about as we were just talking, you mentioned robots a lot. It, it reminds me that the, uh, it was a Czech playwright in the 1920s who was the guy who came up with the word for robot, of course. Since you're Russian, you would understand, of course, because it was robota. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was a play. And, and, and media, I think, even from this initial play in the 1920s, has always portrayed AI or robots and their learning in, in a negative sense because maybe that's what sells. And that the whether it's minority or poor to others, there's a systematically a negative pall put over the potential. Whereas just as you're saying, I think there's a lot of exciting things. Anyway, Mikhail, beautiful. Thanks for coming on. on. Tell us how anyone can connect with you, follow you. What's the best way? Track you down. Uh, yeah, sure. If anybody wants to chat, you could. I'm obviously on, on Twitter. It's just my first name, last name, Mikhail Naumov. And uh, I uh, you know, work at a company called Digital Genius, and we're trying to make some massive splashes, bring practical applications of deep learning and artificial intelligence into customer service organizations of large and growing brands. So if you're interested in that, you can send an email. It's my first name, Mikhail, at digitalgenius.com. Beautiful. Well, I feel like I've done some deep learning myself, Mikhail. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of
with all your favorite shades and we paint it with our fingers to show the world the way we feel oh, oh the way I feel Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.